Let's talk. Docs. So welcome to Let's Talk Docs. Today we have Fabri. Fabri is a UX writer, a technical writer. In his past career, he was a technical journalist and he studied psychology. He's based in Barcelona. Fabri, what am I missing? Maybe I could just add that I'm a father of two, soon to be father of three. Oh, that's so exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it's really great. And yeah, I think your intro speaks to maybe kind of an interesting backstory here. So I'd be curious to dig a little bit more into, you know, how did you get started in technical writing? You know, you kind of came out of university with maybe a different focus. What was the path that led you here? Yeah, so I've always been interested in tech since a fairly early age. And I'd also been interested in tech while majoring in cognitive psychology. The reason why I got into psychology was primarily things like neuroscience, artificial intelligence. I didn't get to see that much of that stuff during university, but it got me more into software, into computing. I got like the computing club at the university. So technology was there, like there was this very strong presence of tech. And I also enjoyed writing. I started blogging around 2002, which was a bit early for Spain at least. So writing at tech was already there. And after graduating, I got into PhD school, but I dropped out after a year. Didn't really enjoy research, at least the way it's done. I like research. I enjoy reading about research even these days, but it wasn't just my thing the way it's currently organized in most universities. And I found this job in Barcelona. They were looking for tech journalists. Have you ever used sites like download.com when you had to download some free software? Sure. Um, yeah. Before packaging. Right. Yeah, it's right. A, yeah, exactly. I mean, for Windows users especially, that was very popular. It's kind of now belongs to ancient history of the internet and software. But back then, it was still, you know, going large. And there was this Spanish version of Double.com called Softonic.com, which is still around. And I joined that team. It was growing fast, talking about 2008. And they were looking for someone to review software and write about software in their tech block. So that's how I started and it was like seven years of reviewing all kinds of software for all kinds of our audiences. And it was technical writing in a way, but more like an introduction maybe to the wider field of explaining technology to people. And then, you know, after that came things, content strategy. I organized some content strategy meetups here. So like, that's how I got acquainted with the meetup scene. And then I started that team, the, the game maker, the Candy Crush guys that recently got bought by Microsoft. And <laughs> I started doing internal documentation there. And, and it was quite a unique opportunity because at the time, here I'm talking about 2015, there weren't many technical writer openings in Barcelona yet. It was still, you know, very fresh. Not that many tech companies, then the scene exploded, but it was quite an opportunity. But in the end, you know, it, I had several different job titles in my career, but it, if I were to summarize, it's all about writing about tech for, you know, just to breach the gap between the people who make the tech and the people who's going to use the tech. This is very interesting because you're not the first person that we came across that has a background in going through that PhD route and then finding themselves writing documentation and doing UX writing. Yeah. I think the research aspect of it translates well to like UX writing. Yeah, I don't know what's about research. I also know other former researchers that the transition to tech writing, I think there's something about precision in, in scientific language and 
when you write a research paper, it's a bit formulaic. You have to use certain patterns, certain constructs, and the way you write the articles. And the, it's all very structured content also. So a bit of that maybe helps someone transition to, to technical writing in a way. And if you come from a, a deeply technical field, that also helps. Yeah, I love this kind of verbiage of kind of the translator or something like that. I, I do always feel like that's kind of the role, right? You kind of have the subject matter expert who maybe knows their subject incredibly well, almost too well, maybe, the, to be able to explain it. And then you have the audience who, you know, what's what they need to know in a hurry? But then you have to have that thing in the middle, right? It's like, how do we connect these two realities? And I, I think that's such an important part of kind of technical writing communication, but journalism as well. It's really that kind of mediator or, or translator, I think it's a great way to think about it. Indeed. Yeah, sometimes I present myself, jokingly, of course, as a computer psychologist, this has it. <laughs> um, you have these incredible people creating this awesome, unbelievable technology. But most often than not, they're not the best people to explain it. I mean, think of Steve Wozniak, and then you have the Steve Jobs type, which, of course, is, is marketing, is sales. But I think there's room for technical writers. There's room for someone who sits next to Woz and asks the questions to about, oh, what's this awesome thing you build? And how do you use it? Let's explain this to people, right? That is a wonderful image. There just needs to be someone who translates the tools to the users, the people who are actually using the tools. And I think many software developers, they sometimes forget that they don't know their audience very well, or they're so close to the technology that it's really hard for them to explain it in a way that is engaging and has empathy. And I would have put a, a small shout out in here for the marketers as well, because I do think they're doing a similar job, but in the business process, they're also taking product value and explaining it to people in words they can understand, but just with a very, very different lens. It's more the like, how do I think about this for my business? What value am I getting out of it as a kind of economic value, maybe not technical value or something, but I, I think there's often this tension, let's say, between you know, maybe marketing and then the development or, or technical side. I don't like the word technical, but the kind of engineering side of the house. But I, I do think that, yeah, there's a similar value there of taking it and putting it into the words that, that the market understands where they need to see them. So you need a landing page for a marketer. You also need a landing page for your documentation for someone who's maybe implementing it at a technical level. And, and maybe you have an API product where those two things start to overlap more and more. <laughs> but I do love that as a way to think about a lot of the business around just creating technology and the value all the different parts of the organization provide. Speaking about empathy, could you tell us more about the Columbo technique for technical writers? Columbo is a television show, I believe from what the early 80s. I used to watch it with my father and it was a very interesting show and I never thought that it would be used in the context of technical writing. Well, yeah, I sometimes do that, like a very fun metaphors and using maybe TV shows or, or movies to explain stuff. Someone asked me, how do you extract information from subject matter experts? And I was trying to think of something that could capture the essence of what I do on a daily basis. And then the, uh, this image of the detective came to my mind. And I was thinking, too, what kind of detective are we talking about? And I thought immediately thought of Colombo. I'm a big fan from the 80s, of course, but the show dates even to from the 60s and, and 70s. The first thing I would highlight about Colombo is that he's a nice guy. 
He's not Spock, he's not Sherlock Holmes, he's not Dr. House that comes to your office or to your home with an answer ready or with an arrogant attitude. Colombo is not like that. Colombo just tries to be nice, seems very unassuming. That's just, you know, a mask, if you want, or a device that he uses to extract information. Because what you want is, when you approach an engineer, an engineer has lots of things to, to say about its product or the code base, but you want you to approach the expert with a very... Uh, kind, servant, delicate demeanor. You, you don't want to scare them away. You don't want to sound as if you know everything about it. Instead, it's quite the opposite. Yeah, like you want to feign ignorance sometimes, or you want to, to feel curiosity. And I think some of the best sessions I've had with subject matter experts were, you know, just casual meetings where I asked them about what they were doing, like in a very casual way, just to find out what they felt proud about. And I think that's a great start for a relationship that they can bring lots of information, knowledge, knowledge transfer. I think that is a, a wonderful summary of kind of the empathy that people talk about in terms of kind of the role. Like I, it's one of my favorite things about kind of organizing spaces and events for documentarians is, yeah, the, the empathy is like at the max level of any other community <laughs> that I've engaged with. And I think that was a wonderful kind of personification of, of like, that's what empathy sounds like, I guess. Yeah. When it comes to junior technical writers, is this something they struggle with in terms of like talking to the expert manner, the expert, which is in this case, an engineer? Yeah, I think so. And part of it might be just the difference in seniority level. Sometimes lack of self-confidence. There, there might be many reasons. And now that you mentioned junior technical writers, I think it's, it's essentially the same problem that a junior journalist would have or a junior therapist would have in the sense that when you start in a profession that requires extracting information from people, the classic mistake is to start with something very scripted, very rigid, based maybe on some handbook approach where you ask cliche questions, which might work sometimes. But the more flexible you are, like the best interviewers in journalism improvise. They adapt to what the interviewee say. And I think it's the same is true for the technical writers. You don't go with a list of questions like a shopping list. Rather, you want to start with breaking the eyes, trying to build a rapport. Then you really bring out the things that you're interested in. And you might not get all of it. And it's fun. And it's sometimes I see junior technical writers really struggle with, you know, I have a one-hour meeting. I want to know it all. I want to learn everything about it now. Well, uh, that's not always possible. Like you also have to be patient. You mentioned cliches. What are some cliche questions that newer technical writers might ask? Well, I think some excessively open-ended questions like, how does this work? I mean, <laughs> it's fine. It's, it's, it's fine to, to go with the basics, but it's just to broaden. Like if you ask something like that to an engineer, like first question, they will just stare at you like, come on, you really want me to explain everything from the back end to the front end to... So and I think this is related to something that I wrote in that post by the Cologne Technique, which is you have to do some more work first. You have to try to investigate as much as possible, even test the product itself, test the code itself. And it's fine if it breaks. If you show the engineers that you've actually tried to do some API calls or you've tried to run the thing, first of all, their respect towards your question will rise exponentially. And then you will have like that common ground, like engineers like talking about the specifics, like, oh, I got this error. What could be the cause here? 
And then it's a thread that you start pulling and you get the camera answers. So it seems like scoping and research is really key in terms of like being successful in that technical writer engineer interview. Awesome. So we're going to move along to our next question. One of my favorite topics to talk about, which is docs as code. So what is docs as code? And what does this mean that all technical writers should learn how to code? Because there are many technical writers out there that feel discouraged because they do not know how to code or they do not come from an engineering background. Perhaps a, a more fitting name should be Docs plain text, really. Because that's, that's <laughs> what the code is in the end, right? And it's probably less scary to people who don't code. But I think Docs code is perfect as a name that conveys the idea that essentially you work with the same tools at the same level of developers. And it really speaks of collaboration. So the core message to me is more than a method, I would say, is an attitude of essentially embedding yourself with a culture, with an engineering culture, maybe, or a team culture. And if the culture to which you are embedding yourself is based on code, then it's Docs code. If the team you were creating documentation for is something, you know, working a different way, then it would be maybe Docs something else. But it turns out that we do lots of documentation, the software field for developers. And, and Docs code, I think, really speaks of that collaboration. I do think it is about process. I see some similarities with kind of DevOps and the world there where it is. This is super fascinating because when I first asked the question, I was thinking more of a skill set, but it seems like this is more of a culture. Especially for people entering the field, it's a little about the skills. It's a little about the, what software do you use? What standards do you like learn? But that really doesn't matter that much as the attitude, the behavioral patterns. See, psychologists in, in the room. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter. You can do Docs code with pretty much any markup language, even HTML or even just plain text. The essence here is working in a way that doesn't create an artificial barrier with the SMEs, with the people you work with. I do think that the DevOps community around kind of operations and software also struggled with this, where everybody thought it was a tool challenge, right? They were like, it's all about the tools, but really it's all about the culture, right? And tools are a, a representation of culture. You need to integrate with the team. You need to actually be able to kind of follow similar processes. You maybe need to be in the same meetings. But yeah, having similar tooling is what enables that integration, or more specifically, integrating is what leads to similar tooling. Who knows which way the causality goes there? But I agree that, yeah, the branding historically with DevOps as well, everybody struggled to define it culturally after the challenge of marketing it originally. People just saw the tools. But I, I think it's a very important point that the tools are an outcome or a, an implementation detail if you're an engineer. <laughs> and I think if you want to pursue your sanity, well, well the docs is work. I think not minding the tools that much is the way to go because let, let me say that the uh, landscape for Docs code tooling is still quite uh, fragmented. Uh, <laughs> fragmented. Fragmented is, is a very neutral, I like it, fragmented. But that really reflects also what happens with open source software as a whole. There's not just Docs code problem or markup languages issues. If you look at how developers create front-end websites, front-end experiences, there's so many JavaScript frameworks out there. So it's, it doesn't just affect documentation as code, but we do have that issue. And sometimes I wonder if we documentarians could somehow lead by example there by, by standardizing. And I know some, there's some efforts going on, like 
ASCII doc, which recently become uh, an Eclipse project. They're standardizing the, the syntax there. It might take a while, but we shouldn't obsess about tools also because of that. I think this is a really important lesson because there are many technical writers out there who just have a laundry list that never ends of the different technologies they should learn. It's HTML, CSS, then it's JavaScript. Are you sure it's vanilla JavaScript? Well, what about React? Or what about Vue.js? And it just not only never ends, but it's really beside the point of making sure that you're communicating to your audience and you're also communicating well to the engineers. Yeah, I mean, what's worse is that it's a bit self-limiting. You pick up some technologies and um, markup languages, you make them part of who you are professionally. There's always the risk that you go to a new new place and they don't use that. And and you can't really impose those standards and those languages on the tech stack that you are embedding to. So you better be flexible. Yeah, I think that's important as well. I think when we tell folks, hey, your ability to learn is the most important skill set that you bring oh, to yes. people. I think people don't really understand the context of that statement, but like conversations like this, Fabri, you telling us about the importance of asking good questions and scoping and culture, just really bring that point home. Speaking about communication, like our next question is, what skills did you pick up as a tech journalist that you still use today? as a tech writer? I'm not sure if I call it a skill, but maybe more like a trade or, or something that you nurture and develop. Maybe it's already there. I think people get into journalism because they have a strong curiosity for knowing how things work and what happens. And they have these inquisitive mindset. And curiosity is definitely one. You have to have the thirst for knowledge, for understanding how a complex system works and how the system is developed behind the scenes, especially that part maybe, because journalists are about digging beneath the the facts, who who are the actors, who's doing what. I'd love to see more journalists become writers because of that curiosity, that appetite for truth, for the truth of the product, it just says. So that'd be one. And that's what I observed when I actually worked as a software developer at a magazine. And when we were working with journalists, The process is very similar in terms of asking that who, what, where questions. And instead of writing or instead of coding, it was really important to get the, why are we doing this? Who are we helping? Are there any alternatives that we are actually missing? And is this actually the right narrative? Is this the right tool? And just not being tool oriented or narrative oriented is really important in like journalism and in technical writing. Yeah. It's like which notebook brand do you use right as a journalist (laughs) (laughs) oh it's pen that's awesome example oh yeah yeah yeah. there's very uh, lots of opinions in there there's a couple more things that i would bring from journalism and are kind of related one is like i think a good journalist is like a bulldog they don't let the fact the news really go away without satisfying answer and i think having the persistence is key to get to the bottom of what you're documenting and I think that's intimately connected to being a user advocate. I mean, journalists are advocates of the readers. They want to find the truth for the reader. And I think technical writers are the advocate of the user in the sense that very often they're the first to try out a new feature or testing a product, which is dog fooding, as they call it. 
And they really want to make sure that the experience makes sense because it's, and this is maybe a wider content strategy issue, but it's really hard to document something that doesn't make sense. And it's really important to speak up if it doesn't make sense and not just go along with it. I think there's a classic refrain there that, right, you can't fix a product problem with documentation. Many people have tried, but it's just like, here's our 17 step thing to fix this thing. There's obviously an issue with our product. (laughs) Yeah, but you can uncover them. You can find those issues and give them shape, which is great. I think if a product leadership recognizes that in in technical writers, it's, it's fantastic. You're both a a tester and an explainer. You're where the kind of the abstractions used in the product language or the kind of content writer manifests where it's like, yes, I previously thought about the product this way and now I'm thinking about it this other way. And that's really hard for a user. Like if it's hard for me as someone who works day to day with this, it's going to be particularly hard for a user. What kind of advice would you give folks who want to become a technical writer? Like they're just graduating from university or maybe they're career changers. They've read your wonderful blog and they're inspired. So what are their like next steps that they should take in order to pursue this career? Some general tips, I would say, start by building your own website, which could contain also your own portfolio. Many times there's this advice of start collaborating with open source projects, but it's not that easy to get into an open source project into the community surrounding a, a popular project sometimes. So I believe that's a skill in itself. Thank you for being really yeah. clear. It is a skill to be able to join open yeah, source. Totally. Yeah, and I think it's almost investigation journalism as its best. You're infiltrating almost community. <laughs> but if you don't have that luck or don't obsess over it, like there are many ways of building a portfolio. And I think the best perhaps is to grab a piece of technology that is maybe it's in your home or how many people is frustrated every day by user manuals that are just bad and try to improve it, try to rewrite that. And there's a fantastic example for any portfolio, really. If you do a good job at explaining something that you use daily, you already have the knowledge. You don't have to ask any subject matter expert and you're showing your skill and you're honing your skill at explaining complex stuff. I did want to notice as well that We were talking about cliches earlier, and I do feel like try to contribute to an open source project is almost at the point of a a cliche, right? It's like, oh, it's so easy. You know, it reminds me of the the online thing about drawing a cat or whatever, right? Where it's like, step one, draw the leg. Step two, draw the cat or whatever, right? It's like, there's a lot more context required. Yeah, I think stressing that also produce that there's yearly waves of, I, I think it's a season of docs, or I've seen other initiatives where folks are invited to contribute to open source projects, also with documentation, and you get to see tons of tiny pull requests, maybe they edited a comma, or, I mean, that's not really portfolio you, you can ship to employers. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. And Eric, I didn't expect you to say, yeah, with open source, it's like that, draw that cat, draw the head, And now draw the whole entire body. And I think it's a worthwhile endeavor, but I think we just really need to be honest that it is an endeavor for you to go into an open source community and contribute. Like they have their own culture. It's almost like being an anthropologist first and observing and then inserting yourself in. A hundred percent. And it is one of those things where I've worked in open source probably for close to 15 years now. And to me, it's second nature, but just seeing the things people struggle with and some of the folks I work with day to day, 
it's just not that easy. You know, maybe you think, how, how is GitHub different than a corporate support tracker, for example, right? What are the expectations? How do I not come across as entitled? I think so much of this is just like ignorance and, and context where people just don't understand the space they're entering and what the norms are. And it can lead to really bad interactions for everybody. <laughs> and so I think, yeah, the more education we can do there. Yeah, it, it's one of those expert problems, right? Where you're in open source, you don't see the the barriers and the the assumptions that you make day to day where somebody coming in, there's no, you know, maybe there is a guide now, right? It's like, here's how to interact with this project, but the guide for every project is different. I think there's a guide on the technology, mm -hmm. but I don't think there's a guide that's about the culture and how self-aware it is. Because I think people, they follow the GitHub, they follow the contributor guide, but then there are like cultural things like, you should fork. Well, maybe this is a contributor guy as opposed to you should just make another branch or this person usually doesn't answer in three days. Or maybe there are certain hot button questions that might make the team upset that's not really spoken about. No, I think you nailed it. You have to be very patient if you want to follow that path. And as you say, the contributing guides, they're not always super transparent. And sometimes due to necessity, some projects also have some not very visible subgroups of contributors that maybe come from corporate settings. So you've got like these very complicated mix of open source under free time contributors, full-time corporate contributors, all in the same repo, so can't get complicated. To your first question about how to best enter technical writing, I would add that if you come from a developer background, you can do technical writers a great favor by improving the tool chain, the technology. And I think that's another very valid way of getting into, especially the more doc ops or the tool side of things for documentation, which is very valuable. Can you say more about improving the tool chain? Yeah, I imagine this, I don't know, like I use a restructure text right now for documentation, so that means using Sphinx. And there are like several standards for restructure text. It turns out that converting between those is not super simple. If I saw the resume of technical writer Wannabe, former Python developer, that created a small script to convert tables between formats flawlessly. I mean, I would hire that guy. Yeah, who wouldn't, right? That level of kind of commitment. And, and I think that's what people think about when they recommend open source. They're like, it's a way of showing intent and maybe working outside of your job description, but it's kind of hard because it's also excess labor, <laughs> right? I mean, there's all sorts of privilege and politics bound up in these understandings and suggestions, but I do agree that people that, that engage with the tooling and with the content is a great signal. I just kind of wanted to touch on what Portia was saying around the, the kind of guide to the social interactions. One of our previous guests, Megan... She kind of put together a how to engage with me at work and things like I prefer direct communication versus indirect communication or here's the things I want to talk about. Here's the things maybe we don't do so well around here or maybe it don't take me three days to reply to your email. But if you slack me, I'll show up in five minutes more in a work context. But I really loved that as an example of that missing documentation for these communities. I see this for myself as one of the people building the tools that you discuss. There are all these norms in those communities where don't talk about this specific issue or else you will get yelled at. But how do you know that, right? Luckily, most communities don't get to the level of the Linux kernel mailing list. But if you that want is to a get pretty a extreme example. Pride, <laughs> yeah, I think you could provide that example as something that you don't want to, to touch in with a stick. But anyway. I also worried it's not that all these communities you need to walk on eggshells. There needs to be room for that experimentation and 
coming into it with a good kind of good intentions and being very explicit about your interaction, right? It's like, sorry if this has been asked before, but in the way you ask questions, things like that will make a, a world of difference in the reception that you get. Yeah, possibly the best, the most authentic way of getting into open source contribution is start by contributing to something that you use a lot, like every day, because that gives you the knowledge to sense the pulse of the product of the community. And then try contributing with something maybe from fork. That I think is, is a fantastic way. Like I contributed once to Doxy, which is a great open source theme for Hugo, maintained by Google, technical writers. And I was using that theme at a previous company and I wanted to add Swagger UI, API reference docs to the theme because many things like that. And I tested it locally and I thought, why not contribute in this app stream? So I opened the pull request, I tried to document how to use a feature and, and tried to make it very easy to test and I got it in. And that was a very pleasant experience. But, you know, it all started because I was a user already of the, of the product. I don't think that's emphasized enough. I can talk about my own misadventures in open source and I have many. And I think one of the bigger problems I've had is I would insert myself in projects where I didn't use it. I don't know the community. It wasn't a tool that I had any connection to. And so I think that we do need to tell more folks, hey, if there's something that you use a lot or if you've written about, like for me, it's Vail. I love Vail as a linting tool. Then if you have a problem, instead of you can point out the problem, but isn't it so empowering to be able to not only note what the problem is, but to actually provide the fix. And I mean, I just think that is the heart of open source. It's just empowering people to have a bit of ownership over creating and fixing their tools or the tool system. 100%. And not even necessarily providing the fix, right? But even having the, the product understanding to suggest the fix, not just here's the problem, but like here is a solution that might work just in words, right? It doesn't require code, but it's like based on my knowledge of how this product works, here is a way I think we might fix this rather than just like, here's what's broken. I think just taking that ownership, taking that next level, it doesn't require additional technical skills or, or being able to program, but just that, that knowledge of the product, I guess, is super helpful in that context. Also, let's not forget that when we talk about open source contribution, it's not just getting a pull request merged. Sometimes it's reporting or commenting or reviewing. And if you approach with open source with humility and, and patience and a listening attitude, listening stance, I think you'll go great lengths because it's, you won't get that frustrated. And you'll be able to participate at least with the good questions, which is already in itself very useful. There's just so much overlap here. I feel like I, I keep coming back to these kind of themes from earlier where it's like, I just love the concept of a documentation detective as a kind of branding for technical writing. But then similarly, I think your Columbo kind of concept, I think approaching open source in a similar frame, it really is about coming to people with good intentions. I think it's very important to, you know, remember there's always people on the other side of the computer. <laughs> Yeah, I think all the skills that are great for technical writing and being that kind of translator are wonderful for open source as well. And I just love, we didn't plan for this conversation to go towards the, the open source contribution, but I think it's so relevant and, and very needed. So I really appreciate it. And I think we're getting to the end of our time. Is there anything else you kind of wanted to touch on before we uh, let people go or any specific work of yours you wanted to mention? Anything like that? Yes. Yeah, so I'm working on my children's story on Open Telemetry. 
So <laughs> that's probably not something. Oh my gosh! Yeah, right? <laughs> oh my gosh! Really? <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. yes. Why open telemetry? This is something that I'm working on outside the podcast. And why is your audience children? This is so fascinating. Well, first of all, open telemetry because I happen to work with teams exploring who, who develop open telemetry. They're contracting contributors, even maintainers, and. So I had to dig a lot into open telemetry, how it works, et cetera. And I was like, I saw this post in Hacker News about someone who created a children's story for Kafka, which is even more complicated. And I loved the idea and it stuck it with me. And it was like, I would like to do something like this one day. And I thought, hey, in telemetry, I think this is the best test subject for testing out this, this crazy idea. And I would say maybe kids of engineers are the best audience for this, but also engineers themselves in the sense that I think it's a story is just, it's about a simplified way of explaining something technical. So it's also technical writing in a way, just in a way that is like simple English Wikipedia or the explaining like I'm fine Reddit. It's also technical writing. It doesn't have to be complicated. And I don't know exactly what the final audience will be, but I wrote it in a way that kids can understand it like eight years old and above but also their fathers or their mothers. And other thing can create like, can bridge also other gaps that existing technology, which is, and I think this is a problem for most technical writers is explaining what we do at home, <laughs> like for a living. Where can I find this? Because my team is actually working on the open telemetry documentation. This would be so useful for us. Yeah, so let's cross fingers. It's in the final editing stages. The illustrations are ready. We are redeeming the text, do a final pass. So hopefully this month we'll see it. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much for working on this project. It's a brilliant concept. You're welcome. I think it's such a wonderful kind of know your audience thing. Sometimes there's a lack of respect maybe for a simpler audience that people might feel. But I think as a writer, explaining things simply is actually the most skill. I think when you contextualize it as for children, people may believe out some of the judgment around, oh, this is too simple or whatever. Like, I, I just love the idea in general. If only we were lucky enough to have all of our technology be able to be explained to children, then the industry would be a, a much better place. Very true. Awesome. That's super exciting. Thank you, Fabri, for spending the time and yeah, having some really wonderful work you're doing as well as some insights on the open source ecosystem as, as well as being a technical writer, communicator as a whole. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for spending your time with us and sharing your journey of technical writing and the things that we need in order to become better technical writers. One last note, where can people find you online? Is there a good place to follow the work that you're doing? I have a personal blog, which I built by using Hugo. So there you go. And the domain is https colon slash slash passo which in Italian stands for stop motion but it also means step one. So there you go. That's the pun. And I also have my Twitter handle, which is Remarketti. That again, is a, it's a Spanish word. So probably best to publish this as text somewhere. I'm going to check the show notes. Thank you.